Christ Church Kingwood is a Christ-centered church that seeks to proclaim the gospel in both word and deed by glorifying God and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us now as we worship together in the ministry of the word. Father God, as you tell us in Hebrews 10, by the blood of Jesus, we have confidence to enter into the holy places. God, we have been invited into your presence, not just each of us individually, but we as a community, united in Christ as one people, God, as your people, can approach your throne in worship with confidence. God, we pray that this morning, that as we worship through song and prayer and fellowship and the preaching of your word, that you would be near. God, that you would unite us with you and with one another, that we would find joy in your presence, that we would find joy in the community of faith that you have brought us together with, for your glory and for our joy. Amen. All right. Uh, So good to be here. Um, We're continuing our series on the mission and vision of God's church. This morning we're going to be talking about gospel-centered community. And this is really something that you guys are so awesome at. And I say that every year that you're awesome at this, but I feel like the awesomeness just increases. And I'm not sure exactly if that's because there are more of you being awesome at any given moment or if the ones that were already here are more awesomer. Or maybe there is some combination, but I love it. Moral is you are awesome. And over the course of my 10 plus years here as pastor at CCK, it's gone from literally In the old days, nothing would happen without me knowing and approving and probably being a central part of whatever was going on to now we're more often than not, I just hear about how you're serving and giving and supporting and caring for the needs of one another. You're making meals and babysitting kids and cleaning houses and gathering to pray over one another, just being available for one another when they're struggling. It is this beautiful picture of gospel-centered community at work. And I just want you all to know that this is abnormal, okay? That you are abnormal in this culture. Not just in the unbelieving world, right? We should stand out from the unbelieving world. But even in much of Christian culture, you are all like a a herd of unicorns riding on a double rainbow. (laughs) You are strange people because gospel-centered community is rare. We, We live in this Christian culture that is more often than not driven by metrics. Success is defined by numerical increase of people and money and ministry involvement. It's just the world we live in. But the interesting thing about gospel-centered community is that it's not something that can be measured. It doesn't fit well on a spreadsheet. 
We can't count it and give you end-of-the-year stats. It can only be lived and experienced as the gospel compels us to look to the needs of others and to care for those God has united us with. And it's always something that we can grow in. So you're awesome, and you can be more awesome. Just like we talked about last week, that God created us for worship, God also created us for community. Not not only that, but I would say that gospel-centered worship will always compel us towards gospel-centered community. And I'll say that again because it's super important. Gospel-centered worship will always compel us towards gospel-centered community. And this is important to understand because another growing trend in modern Christian culture is the idea that you can be a faithful Christian while actively avoiding engagement in the body of Christ. We've all seen it. It's a weird, unbiblical infusion of American individualism into Christianity. But it is diametrically opposed to the life of faith. True worship will always move us towards the community of believers. Because when we trust in Jesus, part of the promise of the gospel is that we are united with both God and with other believers. We become part of an eternal family. Not not only that, but it is the community of faith that is one of the primary means of sanctification that God gave us for this life. So, to say that we worship and trust God with all our hearts, but then say, but God, we just don't trust your means of shaping us and growing us as your people, that's absurd. Scripture is clear. I mean, go to Hebrews 10. We read, you know, don't neglect to gather together right? We talk about that all the time. But an even more compelling argument, if one even needs to be made, is how much of Scripture is dedicated to how we are to live our faith out together, right? Our togetherness is assumed throughout the pages of Scripture from beginning to end, And the process of sanctification, the the work of God through the Holy Spirit in the church is shaping us together into the image of Christ. Or as we read in Ephesians 3.10, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be known, be made known. So through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. Think about that. Our existence together, the way we live and love and serve and care for one another should proclaim to the entire cosmos the manifold wisdom of our God. And this has always been God's plan. It's not about a person. It's about a people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. As Jesus prays in John 17, he says, The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them, that they, that's us, 
that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. That the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Right? If you need a verse to just soak in this week, there's a good one. Wrap your mind around that. Let it sink in. Jesus came to save us and unite us so that our unity, our oneness, points people to the love of God. So when we choose to keep the community of God's people at a distance, when we choose to isolate or avoid investing, investing in the lives of believers, we choose to go against the very reason that Jesus came and against the very prayer that he prayed to the Father for us. I don't advise that. And there are plenty more verses to make the point, but if Jesus is praying for this to the Father for us, I don't think we really need to make the case any clearer. Gospel-centered worship will always lead to gospel-centered engagement in community. But it's easy to agree with this as a theological idea. We need to get to this place on an intellectual level. That's step one for sure. But on the, the ground level, where we all exist, this reality is hard. Because people are hard. Right? Even some Christian people are hard. If we go one step further, some of you people are hard. Amen? If that annoys you, ask your spouse. They just said amen. <laughs> ask your kids. Ask your friends. Ask your family. God united us with a bunch of sinful people. And we're all still battling with sin and the flesh, still impacted by the allure of this world, along with the pride and shame and fear and greed and guilt. Which is why it's tempting for us to try and sidestep gospel community by gathering around a bunch of people who look and talk and act just like us. People the same age, with the same hobbies and the same temperaments. Because commonalities are the low-hanging fruit of shallow community. Gathering around themselves people who simply affirm what they already like and think and enjoy. Which comes with a sense of connection, but it never really challenges them to grow in anything of value. Even in the church, there's a tendency to try and build our relationships around these same superficial commonalities. Old and young, kids or no kids, homeschool or public school, CrossFit or yoga. CrossFit wins. There's this endless list of commonalities by which we can kind of isolate ourselves in our little groups. But there is a biblical commonality that unites us all. It's something that all believers have in common. Something that spans all the worldly commonalities that we can so easily cling to. And Paul lays this out for us. 
in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 5. He says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so, the basis for our relationships with one another as the covenant community of God comes down to this. This is what we have in common. This is why we gather. We have all sinned. We have all rebelled against God. We are all guilty, and we all need a righteousness that goes beyond our own and have found this in Jesus Christ alone. And Christ now lives inside of us, empowering us to love one another as he has loved us. See, this is a commonality that spans age and race and hobbies or activities. Whether you're an every Sunday churchgoer or once a quarter or Christmas Easter, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us, in all of our acts of righteousness, were found wanting. And it is only by the righteousness of Christ that we are acceptable to God. With his life, his death, and his resurrection, he has redeemed us. He has purchased us from death. He has reconciled us to God. And so the commonality that we share is something that never changes. We are sinners in need of grace. And that grace has been extended in Jesus Christ. And this is the bedrock of our relationships inside of the community. And when we collectively embrace this reality, that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, when we long to be controlled by the love of Christ, to walk in obedience to God, when we, as a people, no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was raised, the church becomes a city on a hill. It becomes a place where people see our love and long to know the God that we serve. Where they see our good deeds and they give glory to our Father who is in heaven. As we talked about last week, we exist to bring glory to God and to make disciples. To worship God and to draw people into worship. And the way we live out the gospel together is going to proclaim to the world the glory of our God. It's going to give them a glimpse of the coming kingdom and the love of Jesus Christ that has been offered to all who would believe. And so, if you would, flip over to Romans 12. Because Paul is going to describe for us the characteristics of a relationship that is rooted and established in the gospel. Romans 12, 9 through 10, he says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. 
So Paul begins here in verse 9 by saying, let love be genuine. That is, let us be a people who love without hypocrisy. And that's really important because hypocrisy is something that the church can so easily fall into if we're not careful. I mean, honestly, out in the world, that's probably what the church is more known for is hypocrisy. Because it's easy to learn Christian lingo and Christian actions and to be really religious, to know what we're supposed to say and do, and to play the part really well without actually having any affection for Jesus. That's easy. It's easy to pretend like everything's all right, to create this external facade of nearness to God while the internal reality is that we are struggling and distant. That's called hypocrisy. And it is a failure to understand or to embrace the gospel. If the basis of our relationship as the community is that we have all fallen short of the glory of God, that we are all in need of grace, if that's the foundation upon which our relationships are built, then why should it surprise anyone that I'm lacking, that I struggle with sin? It shouldn't surprise people that at times my faith is challenged. The whole nature of our relationship with one another, the commonality upon which we have been drawn together as the people of God, is that I have rebelled against the God of the universe. I deserve condemnation. And it is only by His grace alone that I am found favorable in His sight. So why on earth would we pretend that we are more than we are or better off than we are when the whole premise of this community is founded upon the fact that it's not about your righteousness or my righteousness, but Christ's righteousness on our behalf? See, the cross of Christ is the evidence that God was well aware of your shortcomings and your failures and how wicked you would be. Praise Jesus. And yet he extended grace and mercy for those who would humble themselves before him. This is the truth from which gospel-centered community flows. Let love be genuine. And so gospel-centered relationships create an environment that is safe for people to be honest about where they're at. But... That doesn't mean that this environment is warm and welcoming to ongoing unrepentant sin. We don't come together and confess so that we can revel in our sinfulness, but rather to be disgusted by it, to be broken by it, to humble ourselves once again before the face of God and pray that we will walk in the power that He has provided for us. Because another danger inside the church is to try and take advantage of grace. To look at the grace of God and to minimize sin by telling ourselves that God is going to forgive us anyway. So what's the big deal? And Paul addresses this topic directly in Romans 6 saying, Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? And the answer is a resounding no. Paul says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And if we think 
that sin is not that big of a deal, if we minimize the devastating power of sin, then we don't know the gospel. You may not know Jesus. It is sin that separated us from the presence of God, and it is for sin that Christ laid down his life. And if someone thinks that they can actively minimize sin and live an unrepentant life, you don't know the gospel. You don't know Jesus. Which leads us to the next line in Romans 12, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil. So not only do gospel-centered relationships create safe environments for us to struggle well, but they also hate and make war against sin. They abhor evil. They see it for the destructive reality it is and fight with the power of Christ against it. And this isn't just a personal endeavor. There is a communal, a relational element to abhorring evil because we all have blind spots. We've talked about it before. We have blind spots. There isn't anyone in this room who doesn't have a blind spot, who doesn't have some area of their life where there is a remnant of the flesh, where sin is still tainting your heart. And you don't know it. You're like, no, I don't. Right. It's a blind spot. Right? Of course you don't know it. If you did, it'd just be a spot. That's funny. This is why God gave us the community of believers. This is why he surrounded us with people to travel this road of life alongside. And we need brothers and sisters around us who are, who are going to love us enough and be willing to say, hey, I see this thing and it's ugly. I see this thing and it's dangerous. I see this thing and I love you enough to point it out. Because how can we say we love one another if we see something dangerous in their life and don't speak up? If we see something that's going to cause pain or wreak havoc in their lives, it is unloving to do nothing. It is unloving to remain silent. Right? If, if you all saw me walking towards a busy intersection, so mesmerized by the glory of God that I didn't realize... I hope you'd like rock your Usain Bolt sprint and hit me like J.J. Watt, right? Take me out. Like, honestly, if there's a video, it wouldn't look anything like that. You think it would, but it wouldn't look like that. But I'm guessing some of you would probably enjoy that. I know. Chances are, I wouldn't like it. I wouldn't like it. It would be painful. But the alternative would be much worse, right? You may hit hard, but you don't hit as hard as a truck going 40. See, sometimes love is painful at first. And that may be how it feels when you love people in this way. When you point out a blind spot or someone loves you enough to have a hard conversation with you. But it is a tremendous grace in your life to have people who are willing to go to these hard places. That is the grace of God. As Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And it will be to your benefit if you are humble enough to listen and grow from it. Not because they communicated perfectly, right? That'll never happen. 
or because they have everything in their life together, right? Giving you all the things that pop into your mind the moment they say anything to you, right? But because God graciously uses a community of imperfect people united by the blood of Jesus to navigate the struggles of this life. And my prayer is that we would be willing to love one another enough to both give and receive loving admonition. Because it is the grace of God in this community. So let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Hold fast to what is good. So we're not just hating evil. We're not just looking for sin and blind spots, but we are encouraging one another, urging one another to hold fast to what is good. And this is so powerful, and it is so simple. That's why we don't do it, because it's simple. We want something more complicated. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And I love this verse. The word consider means to think deeply or dwell on. It's a call to think deeply about others or to dwell on others, to consider how you might encourage those you interact with this week, how you might stir them up, how you might push them towards gospel-centered love. And it is a beautiful picture of the gospel of the church at work. As we read in Proverbs 10, verse 11, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. So, we could ask ourselves, am I pouring life into others? Is your mouth a fountain of life? Are you stirring up and encouraging others? Does spending time with you draw people closer to Jesus? That's a hard one. Such a simple thing. If we just slow down and take time to think about other people, to consider others. Right? Take 10 minutes this week and call somebody. Text a few people. Maybe some encouraging words. Tell them something that they do well. Encourage them to be bold in the gospel this week. Just tell them you're praying for them. Right? We all know if someone out of the blue texts you and says anything remotely about the fact that they thought about you during the day, that's so encouraging, right? It doesn't matter what they say. It's like they were in their day and they thought about me and they actually took the time to say, hey, what's up? Right? I'm encouraged. I get, hey, what's up? Like Matt texts me, hey, what's up? I'm like, Matt can't even work because he's thinking about me. (laughs) Makes me happy. Not that he's not getting work done, but he's thinking about me. And I know there's prayers that go with that as well. But I also know that for a lot of you, because I talk to a lot of you, There's times during the week where you feel like you're on an island, right? We got lots of little kids. We got lots of single people. We got, you know, you you just, for whatever reason, you may have people all around you and you feel like you're on an island, like you're struggling alone, 
like no one cares. And if that's you, you, you have a community here, right? You have to tell someone. Start reaching out. Start doing the opposite of what you want to do in that moment, which is just think about how horrible your life is and how alone you are and try and encourage some other people. Stop stewing in the thoughts about yourself and look to the needs of others. You will be amazed at the effect it has on both your life and the lives of those around you. See, gospel-centered relationships hold fast to what is good. And that is work, holding fast. And then in verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So Paul isn't just telling us what to do, but he's telling us to feel something. Ooh, feelings. Gotta be careful. But he's saying feel something. He says that we should have brotherly affection for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And while this sounds simple, if we're honest, it's not always easy because as I know... There are people who love Jesus that annoy you. I know. I'm the pastor. There's people that love Jesus that get on your nerves, that frustrate you. Possibly people in this room. Don't look at them right now or they'll know. So what do we do with that? How do we love one another with brotherly affection when some of you are difficult? And this is where the gospel really speaks into what it means to be the people of God. It is the litmus test of our understanding of the gospel itself. Because as we already said, the foundation of our relationships inside this community, the, the commonality that brings us together and unites us, is the reality that God loved us despite our imperfection and sin and generally annoyingness. He loved us despite that. And it is this truth which paves the way and compels us to pursue loving those who are hard for us to love. Because at the end of the day, if left to ourselves, we would just hang out with a bunch of people that act and think and do the same things we do. But it is through the diversity of the community that the church grows strong. And it will take work. It will require effort. But if you start the simple task of praying for those people who are difficult for you, God will begin to change your heart towards them. And he will open up doors of opportunity for you to engage them and know them and possibly even grow to love them with a brotherly affection. I've said this countless times, but I've seen the fruit of this just among the elders here at Christ Church. Because this group of guys could not be more different. Personalities, hobbies, strengths, weaknesses. I mean, Daniel went golfing yesterday. Or the day before, like, who golfs? That's the most boring thing on the planet, and it's expensive. Nobody should ever golf again. It's just one example, but you see how hard it is. It was hard for me at first, but 
over the 10 plus years that I've been pastor here with both the current elders, and, and there's a few here who have served as elders in the past, we have struggled and we have served alongside one another. I've admonished them and I've been admonished by them on multiple occasions. And what has become clear over these years is I cannot imagine serving without them. It's not in spite of our uniqueness that they have impacted my life and the life of this church. It is a direct result of it. This is exactly what God is doing in the church. He's creating a new kind of community. He's creating a new kingdom, an eternal kingdom of every tribe and tongue and nation and age and demographic and personality type and Enneagram profile. Is that your jam? All united by the precious blood of Jesus. And it is hard at times. It's hard. We've been conditioned from birth to gravitate towards what is similar, to seek out those who will affirm whatever we think. But God is doing something that flies in the face of the wisdom of this world. And he has promised great joy and life when we walk in obedience to him. So I would encourage you this week to reach out to someone in this community that you don't know well that's outside of your normal little circle. Or if that's too big of a step for you, I get it, kind of. Just start praying for someone. Just start praying. Pick someone. Start praying for them. God will honor your prayers, and you will be better off for it, and, and they will as well. And finally, Paul says, outdo one another in showing honor. And I love this right? Obviously, because I'm very competitive. I don't know if you knew that, but I really like to win. I like to win anything. It doesn't matter. And I hear Scripture saying, this is my interpretation, win something. I mean, I looked at the Greek, and it basically says win. Win at showing honor. Outdo one another, which I hear outdo everyone, I'll do everyone you ever see or know in showing honor. You can't argue with me. Rather than striving with all your might to build yourself up and secure your position of honor, right? American dream, we all want to be on the top. Or not. He says, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in humbling yourself and looking to the needs of others and doing everything you can to encourage and uplift and honor them. Honor your brothers and your sisters in Christ. Win that. It's like a flashback to Hebrews 10. Consider how to stir them up to love and good works. And just Greek lesson, consider, is the verb. One another is the object of that verb. It's not consider all the ways. It's consider them in how you can stir them up. Greek lesson over. This is gospel-centered community. It is a community that longs to glorify God. Fueled by gospel-centered worship, united and empowered by the grace that we've experienced through the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
and set free to pour our lives out for one another, to follow Christ in laying down our lives for one another. Let's pray together. Father God, we pray this morning that our worship would lead us and drive us and compel us to invest deeply in your people. God, that you would unite us in Christ. God, that you would break down the walls of fear and pride, all the excuses we use to hold back, to not invest, to not pour in. God, that we would live out your vision for your church. God, that we might live out Jesus' prayer for us. God, that we would be one. God, give us eyes to see one another as you see us and hearts to press into relationships even when they are hard. God, considering others and longing to see the gospel flourish in the lives of those you have united us with. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thank you for worshiping with us through the preaching of God's Word. We exist to glorify God by making disciples. We would love to have you join us in person as we gather together on Sundays at 10 a.m. at the Covenant Preparatory School on Hamblin Road in Kingwood, Texas. To learn more about Christ Church Kingwood, visit our website at ChristChurchKingwood.org. Amen.